90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Pretty good. Have you thought out yet? I've been worried. Barely. <laughs> I think the last text I got from you said something about it was, you know, the high was minus 15 or something ridiculous Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm glad that the carbonite. That's why there wasn't a show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The carbonite has finally gone away and you're back to normal. <laughs> Yeah, so I was up in Winnipeg, and everybody was going on about how unseasonably warm it was because it was getting above zero in the daytime. Oh, my gosh. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> okay, so number one, how much time did you actually spend outside? And number two, how outrageously crazy are these people that live there? <laughs> uh the area is beautiful, other than the fact that it is quite potentially flatter than Kansas. <laughs> That's what I thought, <laughs> which yeah, is hard um, to do. Very flat, very cold. Uh, they went on about the brutal heat in the summers, which was, you know, 80, 85 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's cute. Two digits. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, but the winter, definitely, they've got us beat. It was... I think about minus 15 was the lowest I saw, but even the rental car had remote start. And when we went out one morning, it was frosted inside the car. <laughs> That's impressive. So that was new. Nice. That's nice. And I maybe spent a total of single digit minutes actually outside. <laughs> That's awesome. Over the course of three days, it was walking, uh, you know, from the car into the building, teaching all day. We had food in the building. Everything was connected with hallways. At the end of the day, left the building, walked to the car, drove to the hotel, got out of the car, walked to the bar, which was connected to the hotel through a walkway. <laughs> and that was about it. That's awesome. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I mean, I was pretty upset because it was in the 20s one night here. <laughs> Yeah, so. and we'll also have to talk about it at some point. Uh, we had several folks from the Canadian Met Office there, and wow, their service areas are so much larger than any <laughs> weather service forecast ah. area, and there are so so few reports. You know, they said in one area uh, where this office covers, there's roughly a person for every 500 square miles, and that person probably doesn't have <gasps> access to reliable phone service. Oh my uh, gosh. That's so that a tornado could happen and nobody might ever see it or it could happen and they would see it, but not have a good way to report it and forget about it. Or it could happen and wipe out their house and kill them. And also nobody would know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely different. Yeah. We're definitely going to have to discuss that. Yes, hmm. uh, but actually, very appropriately, we're going to continue talking about cold things. You know, I have to thaw out slowly here. And so <laughs> we're really excited to have Dr. Eric Kelsey on the show to talk about fern, snow, ice, measurement, cold, cold electronics. <laughs> hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Hi, Shannon. Hi, John. It's great to be here. <laughs> so... 
Eric, uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into atmospheric science and how you ended up with this, uh, this interesting joint appointment? So you're at Plymouth State University and the Mount Washington Observatory as a professor in meteorology and as a lead research scientist. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I'm part of the 99% of meteorologists who got interested in atmospheric science and the weather uh, when they were three, four years old. <laughs> uh, you, you talk to a hundred uh, meteorologists and they have a, a very similar story where, you know, as yeah. far as I can remember, I've always loved the weather and was glued to the TV <laughs> watching the weather channel and uh, the, the local news forecast, um, right? That, that was me, um, stereotypical uh, meteorologist. And uh, I grew up in New Hampshire, uh, and that's currently where I live as well. And uh, just absolutely love nor'easters. Um, I can remember as a kid, anytime it snowed, I would either be outside or if it was like after dinner and it was a school day and the next day I'd just be staring out the window at the snow falling through the streetlights outside. Um, I just loved it. And, uh, and it, was, it was pretty clear to me at an early age that this is what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do in meteorology, but I just knew I needed to be a part of it. That's so so I, I think the, the story of, you know, I loved watching the Weather Channel. I, that is a pretty typical story that we hear, but most of the time everybody points to, and then I learned about tornadoes. Exactly. <laughs> you don't hear so much with the, with the winter weather. That's a really interesting angle. I know. I was just thinking yeah. you could take his exact answer and just put tornadoes instead of snow. And yeah, that's everyone I know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Or for the students that uh, come here to Plymouth State, you know, it's uh, sometimes hurricanes or thunderstorms. Uh, a lot of snowstorms are involved. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> wow. it's a common theme. Certainly. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, as a graduating senior, I had a, a, a brief thought that maybe I'd go into culinary arts because that's one of my other passions is cooking. Um, but uh <laughs> Realize, you know, especially as a teenager, um, that I don't know if I want to spend my Friday and Saturday nights in a kitchen cooking. So, <laughs> ah, yes. So wow. I, I decided, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take the, the Monday through Friday uh, day job instead and uh, apply my, my decent math skills. <laughs> <laughs> So, was your undergrad in meteorology or atmospheric science or earth science? What 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 was your undergrad path? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I thought I'd explore a different climate and check out these things I heard about out in the Midwest and planes called tornadoes, and went to the University of Missouri for my bachelor's degree and did a lot of storm chasing out there, and that was a blast. Um, have lots of um, near death experiences. Um, but going out there, it made me understand why I was part of probably the 1% who love winter weather in America. <laughs> I finally realized why <laughs> most, uh, most Americans don't like winter weather. You know, a, a Missouri winter is pretty horrible. It's, uh, <laughs> it's brown. <laughs> It's cold, and when it snows, it's it's a couple inches. It might last a few days, and that's about it. You, you can't do a whole lot with it. 
Um, luckily, the people there were awesome. So, you know, that got me through it. But, uh, um, yeah, I realized during my time out there that, you know, I, I want four awesome seasons, including a, a good snowy winter. So I slowly worked my way back to the Northeast and went to SUNY Albany, New York for my master's degree in atmospheric science. And then after that, um, I went to the University of New Hampshire to merge my interests of meteorology with those of just concern for the environment and climate. And, uh, and so I was in a uh, paleoclimate program at UNH and actually studied some ice cores from Yukon Territory for my dissertation research. And then after that, um, I started applying for jobs and, uh, and this one came up and uh, I was extremely fortunate to, to, be, uh, to be offered the job and well, here I am and I've been here for uh, seven and a half years now. Wow. Um, I can't imagine, yes, being one of those people that loves winter weather. Like, it's really funny because I used to think that was me and I love skiing and I'm like, yeah, this is great. And, you know, then I married, met and married my husband from Iowa and we live in Oklahoma. Right. So yeah, he takes me back there in the winter time and yeah, it's kind of terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then he laughs hysterically whenever it snows here and people try to drive around. So that's a... Uh, that's our winter entertainment here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a snowstorm when I was a college student in Missouri. Um, it was the biggest one I saw in the four years I was out there. Eight inches of snow uh, yeah. that fell between <laughs> midnight and about 6 a.m. And when it started snowing, I got in my little Dodge Neon Sport and <laughs> drove around yes. and just had so much fun. I was the only one on the streets. Um <laughs> was sliding around all over the place and it was it was so much fun and then uh and then i went to bed probably at four or five in the morning and my roommate was from vermont uh so you know we, we both had uh you know growing up in new england in common um being kind of the 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 outsiders in missouri and uh and when we both woke up you know around 10 o'clock 10 30 that morning I looked outside and couldn't believe my eyes. There was not a flake of snow left to be seen. It all melted <laughs> in the matter of about three hours. <laughs> wow. And my roommate <laughs> yep. didn't see us didn't see it at all. <laughs> he oh couldn't believe gosh. it. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, sure it snowed. Great. <laughs> oh yeah. That's uh that's how we live out here. It's pretty great. Um we had we've canceled two days of school this year when we had two inches of snow, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys even cancel school in yeah. New Hampshire? <laughs> we we do actually, yeah. Is yeah. it nor'easter uh, related? <laughs> I'm sorry? Is it nor'easter related? Yeah, it doesn't have to be. And actually, um, you know, uh, back when I was growing up, it would take at least six inches to cancel school. You know, well-timed six-inch event that's that's falling during the morning uh, ah. when you would be driving to school. But nowadays, it doesn't take that much. I think uh, a lot of a lot of schools are playing it more cautious. You know, they really don't want to see anyone sliding around and getting hurt so it actually doesn't take all that much anymore it's 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 odd to see but it's for a good reason so that's true 
It's all good. And the kids love it, you know? Yes. Two inches of snow know, and no that's... school. Really? Awesome. <laughs> I can't imagine, like, growing up without that. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, the second yeah. it snows here, everything's canceled. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, Eric, we met at AMS a couple of years ago. And this year I came by your poster and was really intrigued by some work you've been doing that combines a lot of stuff that you're excited about and some stuff that I'm excited about too, which is measurement and sensing things. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this project that you've got started up and have been uh, leading for the past couple seasons. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I fondly refer to it as the snowpack sensing project. And uh, as you mentioned, this is now my second winter uh, with sensors in the field. And the, the long-term goal here and motivation is um, to better monitor the, condi- the, the state of the snowpack you know, in terms of temperature, water equivalent uh, across the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And you know, it'd be great to, to go beyond that too. Um, but to monitor that and, and capture that high spatial variability of the snowpack so that we can better forecast flooding because as we've seen already in this warming climate and as we expect to see in the future we're getting more rain on snow events really any time during the winter and those rain on snow events oftentimes produce flooding sometimes the flooding is caused or exacerbated by ice jams on the rivers and um, and regardless of, of the warming climate, snow-related flooding you know, often occurs in the springtime uh, anyway, when, when things are melting out. So um, there's always going to be that motivation as long as we're getting snow, and um, which we will for many decades to come, even in the warming climate. Um, and so my approach has been, you know, at this point in time, there isn't a lot of uh, low-cost, reliable, automated instrumentation that can give you a lot of these snowpack variables, especially in a rugged and forested environment like we have here in the Northeast. Uh, It's really easy to fly a plane, say, over the plain states and uh, measure gamma radiation, which can can give you an idea of, of how much water is locked up in the snowpack. Uh, but out here in the east, uh, with, especially with the forest, um, it's really hard to do that. And, of course, it's really expensive to be flying planes around before and after each storm anyway. Um, so um, my approach has been to develop low-cost snow-sensing platforms that we can put a whole bunch out there, you know, capture different aspects and slopes and different mountain ranges, and better understand... Um, in real time, you know, through, you know, radio or whatever transmission of the data, um, what the current state of the snowpack is. And, um, and so in, in the first year, we just wanted to show that we could do this with uh, a platform that cost under $300. And so we did that. We um, actually installed six snowpack stations going up the east side of Mount Washington, all below treeline. In fact, it, uh, they, they were along the Tuckerman Ravine Trail. And, and if there are any ski enthusiasts uh, listening to this, uh, they might be familiar with the uh, 
Tuckerman Ravine, which is a, a famous ski bowl here in the Northeast. Um, and it attracts people from around the world um, to, to ski it. And, um, and so going up towards the base of the ravine, we, we had six stations. And uh, each station, um, its brains was uh, or is a, um, basically an Arduino board, which is a, a small computer chip uh, or computer board. And uh, we used a, uh, one called a Mayfly, which is made by a company called Enviro DIY. And these are designed specifically for environmental sensing. So we went with one of those. It only costs sixty dollars as, as a compared to commercial data loggers that are over a thousand dollars. So right there, we're saving a whole bunch of money. And you can power them with a battery as small as a standard cell phone battery, and those are really cheap too. And you can very easily build your own thermistors, uh, which we have done. So we can um, get a good profile, high-resolution profile of the snowpack temperature and also the temperature of the soil, which um, when, we, when we have a good snowpack that's insulating the cold air from above, the, the soil temperatures are, are above freezing by a degree or two Celsius. And then when the snow is melting and percolating water into the ground, that water is zero degrees Celsius, and so we actually see the soil temperatures cool down to zero and that's how we know when when uh, the snow is actually melting which is a, a good thing to know um, and then we also have little sonic snow depth sensors on these platforms too um, to give us a, an indication of snow depth which actually can be corroborated with the thermistors because the thermistors that are above the snowpack see much higher variability in temperature with the you know warming during the day and cooling at night Whereas the snowpack temperatures, um, they vary much more slowly with time. And um, SWE, right, snow water equivalent, that's a, a, one of the big variables that we need to measure. And currently, we, we're actually going out there and measuring that manually uh, before and after big events. And we try to go out there at least once a week. And I have students uh, who are helping me do that. And... Um, and so that's you know that's that's one of those tough um, tough nuts to crack in terms of automating at a low cost and reliably. Um, there are different sensors that can do it, but um, some of them are expensive. Some of them uh, have you know kind of large error bars associated with them. So um, that's something that um, we'll, we'll think about d developing in the long term. Um, I have some ideas on how we could automate. SWE measurements, um, but for the meantime, we'll take manual measurements and uh, and go from there. All right, so I've got about a dozen questions after that. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, I have so many questions. <laughs> and uh, the, the first one goes way back into uh, an early part of that, which is you mentioned flying an aircraft over as another very expensive way to do this and looking at gamma radiation to tell how much water is in the snowpack and in geology we are used to looking at gamma logs as well but in terms of finding resource in a in a downhole well log so how does this gamma radiation tell you how much water is in the snowpack yeah there's um uh, various uh radioactive isotopes in the bedrock like potassium that um, give off gamma radiation 
and they you know they do this constantly as you you guys know how that works and planes will fly over in the fall they try to do it um, after the leaves have fallen off the trees and uh, but before snow is covering the ground and they get that background radiation level and um, then when the snowpack comes in uh, water is really good at attenuating that gamma radiation and so they'll fly over and they'll sense the gamma coming out and they'll just do a simple uh, difference between the two and then throw in a you know the calibration factor there and and they can back out what the snow water equivalent should be on the ground of course there's a couple of assumptions that go along with that and and, and that is that the groundwater uh, has remained constant uh, that's that's the big one um, that that you just have to assume and, and it's really hard to verify that so there is some uncertainty with that measurement and um, because of the expense of flying an airplane and the limited area that an airplane can cover you know um, it's hard to to get consistent um, you know or even continuous uh, reliable measurements from aircraft um, but um, uh, the um, National Weather Service and, and No Risk, um, they they do coordinate flights uh, throughout the winter, um, and they do that periodically over certain flight lines uh, across the northern tier of the U.S. And uh, so that's something that um, we'll be using to help to um, compare our data to. And actually, we we've been sending our data that we collect to No Risk and and the National Weather Service. Uh, Northeast River Forecast Center that monitors all the, the hydrology in this region. Um, so they, they, they actually find our data really, really valuable and, and there's so few high elevation sites where they get uh, SWE data. So uh, they, they uh, are able to constrain high elevation SWE using our measurements, which, which we're really happy we can help out with that. Okay, so I'm going to go back to also the beginning of when you were talking, and I was furiously scribbling all my questions, <laughs> was you said that, you know, obviously this is going to be used for flood information. So I'm thinking about like a watershed, and where are you going, just because I have so little experience with snowfall, like where in the watershed do you want to focus your measurements like do you need to be really high up like where all the water starts do you want to be at like certain collection points like where's the best place when you're looking to forecast potential flooding yeah that's a great question and with limited resources to take mm -hmm. measurements you know you right. want to target those measurements in places that are representative of a large percentage of that watershed so typically okay. it's not the top of the watershed. Uh, usually okay. it's somewhere mid-elevation, right? Um, that That's uh, really helpful. Okay. All right. Uh, so my next question on the list was, you, you talked about using uh, thermistors, and th there are several questions around that. Um, but one was a criticism that you often hear of you know, rolling your own sensing system and 
I think it's absolutely great to do this because you mentioned the, the huge cost savings, even just in a data logger. But uh, with these more inexpensive sensors, there's always a calibration step that is really crucial because things aren't all manufactured uh, and as tightly controlled as some of the, the more expensive commercial solutions. So what are you doing for calibration for your thermistor chains? Yeah, we calibrated them after we built the sensors uh, in someone's um, actually home workshop, which is amazing. I, uh, there's a guy that's been working at Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest named Frank Bowles, um, who's just amazing with instrumentation. And, and so we went over to his um, to his home where he has this amazing um, workshop for everything electrical and um, you know, woodworking and, you know, putting together metal and things like that. And, um, and so he already had set up a, a program to um, calibrate the thermistors um, all at once. And, um, and after the project ends, or at least after the, the snow season ends, we'll pull the instruments out of the field and then run them through a calibration again, uh, just to make sure there wasn't any drift or if there was drift you know so that we can quantify it and uh and make some assumptions and and correct the data and you know do a multi we'll do a multi-point calibration on them and uh, along those lines um one of the things we're doing this winter in winter number two to ensure that we are getting high quality data that's you know a research grade comparable to using a uh, a commercial data logger is we're actually running two identical uh, temperature profiles in uh, right next to each other. One that's run off of a Mayfly, and then the other run off of a uh, Campbell Scientific CR1000 data logger, and uh, and we'll be comparing those two uh, temperature profiles uh, soon. You know, after the after the winter's done and. And just see how they compare, and and uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, say that yes, you know, it, uh, using a Mayfly data logger uh, it produces research grade quality results too. Yeah, I imagine that you know, even though there's a a digit difference in the price of those two setups, I can't imagine that there's going to be a well. I would be surprised if there's more than a tenth of a degree difference between them after you do. Uh, all the calibrations, but just how much, what resolution do you care about here? I know in winter weather forecasting, it gets all down to the, is it 32.3 or is it 32? So what, what resolution are you shooting for here? Yeah, to uh, a couple of tenths of degree Celsius would be fine. Um, and, uh, and I think that would be more than sufficient to be able to constrain an energy model to, to be able to forecast uh, and predict when the snow is going to ripen and, and melt out. So that's an, an, you know, another longer term goal is to, is to develop some energy budgets for the snowpack. We've um, I've had a, a student, Liz Jerkowski, who, who helped in the initial development of these sensing platforms. Uh, she just graduated in December with her master's degree. Liz uh, ran a couple of temperature index models, ones that the National Weather Service actually runs and um, and did some uh, comparisons between our uh, 
snowpack temperatures and especially the the SWE measurements that we took and what the SWE was that these temperature index models predicted. And, and the results were, were actually not too bad um, given that a lot of the inputs to the model, you know, which include air temperature and especially precipitation inputs. Uh, the precipitation inputs, you know, we didn't have any right there. We had to go down to either the base uh, of the mountain, which, you know, is, is a different elevation, or use the uh, Mount Washington summit precipitation data as, as inputs to the SWE. And uh, it actually turned out really, really well. And the only site that um, where the model didn't predict uh, a good SWE was was one in which we had a lot of drifting from wind. And we actually ended up with uh, over 40 inches or over a meter of SWE at one point, which is <laughs> you know, mind-boggling, <laughs> right? If, if there was there was a meter of SWE across the entire White Mountains, you know, forget about it, right? All cities downstream will be, would have been wiped out. Yeah. <laughs> right. it's easy forecast, I guess, at that point. Yeah. <laughs> what is the difference in, what is the relief for your highest and lowest stations? Like, what are we talking about elevation-wise that, that we're monitoring with this? Yeah, good question. Um, so the base of the mountain where we, we start hiking up to them is uh, about 2,000 feet. And the first station um, in our first year was located at about 2,400 feet. And then the highest stations um, are near a place called Hermit Lake. And that site is about 3,900 feet. This winter, um, we actually have just one station out there. And that one is located at about 3,600 feet. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so it's not too high, you know, and we, if we went much higher, we'd also be entering avalanche terrain. And the last thing we want is for our station to get wiped out by an avalanche. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of heartbreak right, right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the other thing that we're doing uh, this year, um, different from last year is that on the station on Mount Washington, we have a serial radio transmitting data in real time every hour uh, across the valley to the top of Wildcat Mountain, uh, where we have a mesonette station. And then that's then repeated back up to the servers at the summit of Mount Washington. And so we're actually getting a live feed of snowpack temperature uh, there, which is which is really great, and uh, we can monitor the battery level as well. Um, it's being powered by a five watt solar panel, and uh, and so we we know if you know we really need to get out there and change the battery, um, which we do need to um, in the dark depths of winter, you know November <laughs> December January. But uh, now that we're you know nearing the end of February, uh, the the charging from the sun is uh, is actually causing the battery to, to last a lot longer, which is great. But uh, regardless, we have students or myself going out there every week anyway. And just to be on the safe side, we're always replacing the battery when we're out there. That is something I never would have thought about. Not enough, not enough direct solar radiation to actually charge our solar panel. Hmm. Interesting. I, I'm yeah, I'm amazed at how much solar energy we're actually getting because it's under the canopy and there's a lot of 
conifers there. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's getting, you know, sort of indirect sunlight uh, most of the time. And then the, the sun very quickly by late morning or early, early afternoon uh, disappears behind Mount Washington as it moves to the west. So <laughs> it's really only a few hours in the morning that we're getting sunlight. And the fact that it's actually charging at all is, is Doing awesome. Doing it at all. <laughs> yeah, you need hilarious. probably, what, like 30 to 50 watts of panel to, to stay charged, probably. <laughs> well, uh, which is insane for those little sips of power that you're taking. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, it's very low power, which is great. We just run... Um, we actually upgraded from a 2,500 milliamp hour battery, you know, 3.7 volt, to a 4,400 milliamp hour battery. Um, again, not all that much uh, power there, but it does the job for uh, a couple of weeks at a time in the depths of winter. And now that the sun's getting a little higher in the sky, um, these things are probably going to last, you know, at least three, four weeks. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So I would assume, and, you know, this is probably a dangerous assumption, but <laughs> since since temperature diffusion is sort of this loggy looking thing, it, are you, I would assume that you don't put the sensors at an even spacing. You're, you're more densely spaced at the top and spread them out as you go down since the diffusion time gets so much longer. It, is that true? And how deep are you, how deep do you care about? That is a dangerous assumption, John. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I love it when somebody tells me that my assumption is wrong. <laughs> yeah, our, our thermistor spacing is 10 centimeters from the from right at ground level up to 140 centimeters, which this year we, we lucked out, I guess you could say, in that um, we haven't had a whole lot of snow, and we actually had a couple of really big rain-on-snow events in late November and December that knocked back the snowpack quite a bit. So we haven't seen the snow uh, eclipse 140 centimeters yet. Um, last year, we actually had thermistors up to two meters. And for three of our six stations, that wasn't high enough. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But yeah, it's certainly, uh, yeah, there, there's that, that log profile and temperature uh, for sure, um, especially when, when it's uh, sustained cold weather above and, uh, of course, the, the constant uh, trickle of geothermal heat from below. Um, but, uh, you know, you can, you can use uh, uh, linear spacing of data to, um, to, you know, snap that to a, a logarithmic, you know, curve in between. Um, if, if appropriate. Right. Hmm. Definitely. So um, do you, is this something you think about every year when you deploy these? Like, do you look at, maybe we're going to need some that are higher than 200 centimeters or is it just sort of, no, we're just going to do what we can do. <laughs> yeah. You know, part of it is, um, is simply a, a, a structural, you know, engineering problem. Uh, mm-hmm. Last year, we, we used two-inch diameter PVC pipe, and we had two vertical masts, one of them holding the thermistors and the other one there for support, and it was, uh, it was guyed down with some P-cord, and we also had uh, rebar in the rear masts so that, you know, t- just to provide a little extra stability. 
Um, and uh, the stations that got buried, or at least one, yeah, one of the three stations that got buried, um, when the snow melted and it, you know, condensed and, and pushed downward on the structure, it caused it to bend a little bit. It never broke, oh. and the thermistors never really moved much off of their initial height above ground level but it definitely showed that yeah we should you know make this station a little more robust and so this gotcha. year we decided you know let's design something that'll definitely be robust um, and so we went with something a little shorter and we also said let's make sure that we put this in a place that won't get too much drifting of snow so that we minimize the chance that it'll get completely buried. <laughs> and so far, so good on that one. And this year, we sure. used um, one-inch diameter PVC pipe as the main mast holding the thermistors. And to anchor that in place, um, we, we, drew, we have a piece of that PVC going a little deeper in the ground than last year. Um, to, to anchor that. But then we also have an offset uh, four by four post that we um, secured in the ground with what's called an Oz post. It's this metal kind of square bracket that has uh, um, metal that comes to a point that you drive into the ground and you screw in the four by four post into it. And that's really solid. And then we have some, some, uh, threaded bars metal bars that attach the pvc to that four by four post and that seems to be working really well okay do you have any this is my favorite instrumentation question because this is not what i do it's definitely what john does um do animals mess with your stuff <laughs> you know um this year, uh, some Forest Service employees at Hubbardbrook Experimental Forest, which is about 12 miles north of Plymouth, New Hampshire, uh, where Plymouth State University is, they, um, I guess, got inspired by our uh, sensors last winter, and, and um, they decided to build some of their own. And they deployed theirs in October or so, maybe early November. And okay. um, as, as it turns out, Bears really like them as a scratching post. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> and so at least one of them got destroyed even before the first snowflake fell. <laughs> he was oh, like, that man. bear was like, finally, they've been listening to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so, I'm I'm curious, you know. You said, okay, I want, to measure, I want to measure this, and I want to make my own sensors to do this. Did you have a background in doing things with electronics and programming or just an interest? You know, what were some of the, the hard parts, the easy parts? What made you say, well, yeah, we can, we can do this? That's a great question. Coming uh, into this job, I understood the, the value of good quality data, but I never... Uh, had any experience really in instrument design or, you know, really going much beyond how, how standard instruments work. We happen to have here at Plymouth State University a, uh, what we call a watershed sensing lab or, or Watson lab for short, uh, where I've been collaborating with a couple of other colleagues. Um, and, and the point of the lab is to develop instruments and whatnot. And so uh, one of my colleagues, 
started getting Arduino boards and, and other component, electrical components. And, uh, and so I just kind of hopped in and started learning as well uh, with him. And, um, and I got, you know, I just said, huh, you know, this is a lot easier than I thought it would be. I mean, granted, there's a, there's a learning curve, but um, it really opened up my eyes to the possibilities of building your own instruments. And so, um, you know, over the course of uh, several months, I got to learn how to program an Arduino board and how to uh, hook up, you know, different instruments to it and, you know, what the difference is between an analog and a digital instrument and things like that and how to um, use a multiplexer for when you have a lot of thermistors like we have for the snowpack sensing platforms. And, uh, yeah, I've just been kind of learning with um, a couple of uh, other colleagues in the lab and uh, and. I've used this opportunity to help teach students how to build their own instruments, and so they've been uh, a really critical part of the project as well. And, and uh, you know, being able to put these things together in the field and to troubleshoot when you know something uh, might be going wrong. And yeah, it's you know, there's a learning curve, especially with the coding part, because uh, it's coding in C plus plus, and you know, I I learned Fortran originally and then MATLAB, and now I'm learning Python. So, it, you know, it, it was a, a bit of a learning curve. And I, I have to admit, I still don't completely under, understand uh, some of the commands. But um, <laughs> that's another great thing about open source is, uh, and that's what these, you know, Arduino boards are. It's all open source. So you can go online and, and find lots of sketches that, that people have already made for instruments like this. And there's a lot of great blogs and uh, and forums where people have questions, you know, that you have and, and they've already been answered out there. So I utilize all of those internet resources to, to help to help me build these stations out and, and improve them. That That's great. The the internet hive mind is <laughs> is quite awesome. And you know, there's always all this estimate of, you know, how many millions of dollars are lost for every hour that Stack Overflow is down. <laughs> and uh, I, I fully believe it. But I, I think that's really great that you were able to, you know, work with some colleagues and say, well, yeah, it's it's just another thing to learn and, and we can definitely do it. So did you have some, yeah, you know, there's all kinds of little gotchas in writing this embedded code. And especially when you're writing embedded code that's supposed to run unattended for a long time in a harsh environment. So, so what are some of the things that were, were gotchas in working on this project? Um, that's a good question. You know, something that we were cognizant of uh, early on was, you know, that batteries don't like to operate at cold temperatures <laughs> and uh, computer boards also uh, don't like to operate at cold temperatures. So before we deployed instruments last year, we, uh, or, or you know, in the first winter, we actually put the Mayfly board with some sensors and the battery in a walk-in cooler or freezer that we have here on campus. And yeah, we learned once the temperatures got down below, you know, 20 degrees Fahrenheit or so that they really didn't like to work. Uh, so we knew that we needed to keep all of this warm and it was a very simple solution and that's just simply keeping 
the the box containing all the all the components near the ground where where it's getting geothermal heat and it's insulated from the uh, you know really cold Arctic air that we get through the, throughout the winter uh, by the snowpack and uh, as long as we have you know a good eight ten inch snowpack will be good in a warming climate you know maybe this uh <laughs> This won't work at some point, <laughs> but we haven't gotten there yet, thankfully. Um, but <laughs> that's on our radar. Uh, <laughs> so um, we log uh, board temperature throughout the winter, and and it usually stays at about negative uh, one, negative two Celsius, and uh, where the box is sitting, probably within a foot or so of the ground at all times. Okay, yeah, that's that's warmer than I would have expected, actually, <laughs> and that's that's really good because yeah, a lot of these things, uh, well, we've got a temperature chamber in in our lab here that'll go down to I think it's minus sixty five C, and sometimes it's fun to just take a take a product and throw it in there <laughs> and watch it with the camera and see at what temperature it just totally ceases to function. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you bought that for fun instead of science, John. <laughs> Science is fun, Shannon. That's right. <laughs> I'll tell that to my students taking their exams tomorrow. How's that sound? <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> so, you, Eric, you mentioned uh, we've talked about SWE several times, the snow water equivalent. And you said you go out and measure it manually now and, you know, want to do that in an automated way, which I'm all for automating things. But can, can you tell us, how, how do you manually measure SWE? This sounds like something that uh, some of our listeners might want to do. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, something that, um, oh, what's his name? Do, uh, I think his name is Dr. Church, uh, pioneered back in the early 1900s on Mount Rose in Nevada, um, where you just simply take a metal pipe and you stick it through the snowpack vertically and you extract a core of the snowpack. And uh, what I do uh, is I then weigh that on a hanging scale that we bring into the field. And we write that down. Obviously, we subtract off the weight of the tube itself. And we know what the diameter of the tube is. And uh, using um, that, we can calculate what the SWE is of the snowpack. Very simple, very elegant, um, and uh, we usually take at least three cores each time we go out because of, you know, A, the high variability of, of SWE, and also um, just in case there's uh, a little something off in how the snow is captured in the tube. So it's possible that if we are breaking through some sort of ice lens or you know hard layer that when we impact that with the tube that ice layer might just kind of break in half and push out of the way um, and not be captured and you know we'll never be able to know just how well we're sampling um, you know ice layers like that but we take um, more than one measurement and at least three um, just to sort of you know, average out any of those sort of um, coring anomalies that, that could happen. On a, pre on a previous podcast, you talked about snow pillows. And, and those are nice too. Um, you know, they um, 
feel the weight of the snow on the snow pillow and you know there's a little sensor that that measures that pressure um, uh, but those are also wonderful toys for bears <laughs> I mean it's in the name right here's a snow pillow little bear yeah yeah <laughs> can you tell like when they're walking over them instead well I'm I looked up this these snow tell sites that have these snow yep. pillows those look yeah those look like great back scratching posts <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so you know normally you don't you know, it's not something that that you bring in during the summer although I suppose what it would be wise to do so but um uh, I'm aware of several uh, people with snow pillows that have lost them to the uh, playfulness of bears. <laughs> <laughs> the playfulness of bears. I'll try to remember that when I'm hiking and get freaked out. <laughs> it's <Yes>. fine. <laughs> there's lots of, I mean, there's lots of bears in the White Mountains, right? <laughs> there are. Yep. Yeah. There are. Scary. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm just interested because thinking about we just hired a geohydrologist, um, hydrogeologist, one of those things, right? The <laughs> a couple of years ago, and this isn't something like our department is focused on a lot. So this hydrology business is all very interesting to me in terms of, you know, how do you figure out these environments and how everything is tied together with them? So what is if you know, or if you can put a finger, like what is the aerial extent that you're looking at with these measurements to talk about these watersheds and runoff potential in the spring? Like how far apart are these? So I asked about relief, but I guess now I'm asking about spatially, How? what are you looking at? So the, so the, the area that we're looking to represent or capture with these measurements? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or just yeah, where you have uh, your measurements at all. Yeah. Yeah, so the, in terms of the area that our measurements are representative of, we can make estimates, and it's probably on the order of you know, hundreds of acres on the east slopes of Mount Washington in the presidential range. But that's okay. something that we will better measure or, or tackle to, to better understand in future iterations of this when we go out to different parts of the White Mountains and, um, and take more measurements to understand uh, in this particular landscape how, how sweet and temperature of the snowpack vary. Um, that's, that's something that is a, is a big question. And, you know, we can make some assumptions now, uh, but right. really uh, it, we'd want to nail that down with some more measurements. Right. Um, so we were talking a little bit about this before we started, but what have you seen in your measurements so far that's kind of surprising or interesting? What's Yeah, one thing that was really interesting that occurred last winter is on January 24th, I believe it was, we had a big rain on snow event. I believe we had around an inch to an inch and a half of rain that fell on Mount Washington. And... What was really intriguing is how quickly the snowpack went isothermal, meaning that the whole depth of the snowpack went warmed up to zero degrees Celsius. It did that within 
oh, you know, a matter of, of 12 hours, give or take. So that was surprising. Um, and it got me wondering, uh, oh, and in addition to that, we noticed that um, the SWE actually went up. So even though the snowpack went isothermal, the SWE went up. So there was, you know, a, a net gain of SWE from, you know, the, the absorbing of that rain. What I think might be happening there, and this is something I'd love to test, um, you know, with some targeted um, measurements during similar rain on snow events in the future, is, is I think that there was the sort of capturing of, of that SWE. Oh, oh the other, sorry, the other part of this that's important to mention is that the rivers went up quite a bit. And we okay. actually had flood, flooding the very next day. So SWE from our measurements went up, um, yet there was flooding, right? So what's going on there? And it, it clearly wasn't happening, uh, or the loss of SWE clearly wasn't happening everywhere because where we measured SWE, which was in between trees, right, where it's relatively undisturbed, mm -hmm. the SWE went up. And so we're, my, my working hypothesis is that there are certain conduits that allow the the water, the rainwater, to percolate down into the ground, and some some of these conduits are likely tree trunks and and the tree uh, uh, wells that form in the snow around the trees, um, and maybe some some other low spots just in the snowpack too, where um, after like a an ice crust develops, you know, the water kind of sinks down to a low spot in the snowpack and then makes a, a hole through the snowpack, much like a moulin does on, uh, on Greenland, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think there's, there's some really high spatial variability in the flow of this rain on the snowpack that causes some areas of the snowpack to increase in SWE, but also others to decrease um, where there are these disturbances, if you will, in the snowpack, like where trees stick out. And so that's something I'd love to be able to capture with some, you know, really high spatial resolution uh, measurements. How unusual. That sounds really interesting, but hard to do too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How unusual is January rainfall? I mean, especially in those amounts. Well, it, it's, it's always happened in recorded history. But we're okay, seeing so... that it's happening um, a little bit more frequently, especially in lower elevations. Uh, but what's the bigger factor is that when we are getting rain, it's usually with air that's warmer than it, it has been in similar events in the past and with more right. rain. Okay. So in the past, you know, like a half inch of rain, give or take, would be, you know, kind of typical in these rain on snow events. But now we're seeing midwinter rain events that are over an inch, you know, sometimes close to two inches. And that's just incredible wow. for these parts. Right. That's, it sounded like it. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. yeah so, uh, so Eric, this has been a, a big project for you over the last couple seasons, but is, what are some other things that you're working on that you'd like folks to know about as well? Yeah, the other big research project I'm, I'm working on um, has to do with elevation-dependent warming. And the observations that I've made here in the northeastern U.S. 
is that the higher elevations, namely Mount Washington and Mount Mansfield, the highest mountain in Vermont, are seeing warming rates over the last, you know, 60, 70 years that are slower than the surrounding lower elevations. And this decrease in the warming rate with elevation is something that's quite rare around the world. There's a few other places that are observing this same um, elevation-dependent warming, like Niwot Ridge in Colorado. But most mountain ranges that have instruments on them at, at different elevations are seeing faster warming at higher elevations. Furthermore, nearly all climate models suggest that higher elevations should see faster warming than the surrounding lower elevations. And it's hypothesized for, for a number of reasons, like um, the uh, reduce in snow cover, um, changes in soil moisture, clouds, things like that. Um, but I want to find out what's going on to cause this, uh, this aberration in, in this elevation-dependent warming here in the Northeast. Uh, and, and potentially it's the same causes elsewhere, too. Um, and so what I am testing in terms of a hypothesis is that the summit of Mount Washington um, spends about half the year in the free troposphere, um, which is, you know, obviously a different air mass than um, what the lower elevations are experiencing um, all the time. And so if the sum of Mount Washington spending half the year in this different air mass that has different temperature and moisture and cloud properties, then it makes sense that that could be a cause or contributor to this <clears throat> elevation-dependent warming of, of a slower warming at higher elevation. So um, that's something that I'm looking to test. And it all starts with uh, being able to observe and, and model boundary layer height uh, around the mountain of interest. And so that's something that, um, that I'm looking to better measure um, by, by supplementing the existing uh, mesonet of observations on Mount Washington. So right now we have um, what we call the Otter Road Vertical Profile. Uh, there's a, a private company that owns the um, road that you can drive that goes up Mount Washington called the Otter Road, um, uh, Mount Washington Otter Road Company. And um, they... Uh, along there, we have six mesonet stations that measure temperature, relative humidity, and some of them have wind. Uh, and then on the other side of the mountain, uh, along the Cog Railway, uh, a, a train that you can take up to the summit, we have a couple of stations, one at the base and one at 4,500 feet of elevation. And um, so using those vertical profiles, uh, we can get a pretty good idea in a lot of situations of where the height of the boundary layer is on Mount Washington, especially when you have a, a synoptic scale awareness of what's going on. And the uh, radio sonda observations from Gray, Maine near Portland are actually a pretty good indicator under a lot of um, uh, weather conditions of what the thermal structure is of the, um, and moisture structure is of the um, lower atmosphere, even as far away as Mount Washington, which is oh, probably about 60 miles away from there. So we can bring in all this uh, weather data and, and have a, a good idea for a lot of the time of where the height of the boundary layer is. Uh, but to, to really nail down um, where the boundary layer is, we need some more instrumentation. So I'm, I'm going after some grants to 
to buy some of those instrumentation, uh, those instruments like a solometer or a lidar, to help us understand that. <clears throat> and then, so putting it all together, if we can um, understand um, how summit variables change when uh, the summit is going um, in or out of the boundary layer and into and out of the free troposphere, we can then use our um, 85 year plus data record, right? That goes back to, to 1935 and potentially reconstruct uh, the air mass that the sum was in, you know, for nearly that entire period of time. And then we can use that to test that ultimate hypothesis of, you know, is it this exposure to um, the free troposphere and maybe even changes in, in exposure to the free troposphere with time that's resulting in this slower warming. Huh. Okay. Yeah. That's something that you don't normally have to think about as well. Some of my sites are in a completely distinct air mass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so are you going to uh, instrument the, the cog railway and get uh, profiles several times a day up and down the mountain? Yeah, well, we have um, fixed stations there, so they're giving us a continuous, you know, time series of, of data that we can use, and we can look for changes in those variables, you know, at those at those particular points to understand when, say, the ba the convective boundary layer on a sunny day um, is growing up through that elevation, uh, for right. example, and similarly on the auto road side, it would be great to put more weather stations out there to, to increase the vertical resolution. And, and that's something I'd like to do. I'm thinking you put one on the, on the car itself. Oh yeah. And... Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That'd be great. And we've actually done that. Um, so in a, in a field campaign a few years ago, we actually instrumented one of the Mount Washington observatory trucks with um, a weather station. And we also um, had a, water vapor stable isotope analyzer in the truck sipping the air as we were going up and getting a profile of the stable isotopes of water and um, and that gave us some nice continuous profiles that we then compared with weather balloons that we launched from the base of the auto road to get that um, uh, free air or free atmosphere profile of temperature and humidity that was not influenced by uh, the mountain itself. And that was really enlightening. Right. We saw we saw one day where uh, the wind um, was driving the boundary layer, which was lower, the top of the boundary layer was lower than the summit. Um, and the wind was blowing the boundary layer air up to the summit. Um, and so there was this local bump in the boundary layer air. And then as the winds died down during the day, the free tropospheric air settled into the summit um, and so it flipped over to the free troposphere. But then, due to the uh, convective boundary layer growth, the convective boundary layer then pushed back through the summit elevation and put it back in <laughs> back in the boundary layer. It was a really cool event. Wow. And that's wow. actually published. Uh, I got that, that paper published. It's in uh, the, the online journal Atmosphere. That's super cool to All be right. able to see that. <laughs> That really is. Uh, so one question that I always love uh, hearing from folks on is where do you think your field is going to be or where do you want it to be in 10 years? 
Whoa, that's a deep question, John. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Next time, uh, uh, g- give me a little heads up on that one. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> no, oh, it's gosh. the it's the uh, off the cuff is what makes it great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you caught me off guard with that one. Um, <laughs> where do I want to see my field in ten years, man? Um, I guess with respect to these research projects, um, you know, I'd love to see see them kind of built out, you know, kind of how I've uh, detailed, especially with the snowpack one where we have, you know, uh, at least a few dozen uh, stations deployed in key locations around the White Mountains and uh, having those data be transmitted uh, in real time and, and continuing to develop that student involvement in, in all of this. So I, I really love involving students in all this hands-on research and it's a great learning tool. So, you know, better integrating that research with education is great. Um, man, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, are you going to, are you going <laughs> to, okay, so I'll, I'll throw this out. Are you going to put some sensors on some birds and, you know, fly them around the observatory or something? <laughs> you think that'll happen in 10 years? Oh man, I, I don't know if they'll listen to me, and and quite frankly, I think they're usually scared of flying around Mount Washington in the winds there. <laughs> That's probably true. You need to. Okay, so now we need to harness these bears and put some sensors on them, right? There you go. Uh, which it, which is some foreshadowing as to to what's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so the last thing, Eric, is a. Uh, how would you like folks to find you on the internet if they want to learn more about your research or maybe see some of this data if that's publicly available or just contact you? What, what's the best way to find you online? Yeah, on the Mount Washington Observatory webpage, which is mountwashington.org, and that's Mount all spelled out, washington.org, um, you can find under um, uh, the research tab, you can find some descriptions of the research projects that I'm working on and, and that are uh, ongoing. And um, they can reach me via email as well. Um, that's totally fine. And you'll find my uh, email address there online. And um, yeah, the, the snowpack data, um, it's not currently publicly available, but that is the intent. And within the next week or two so by early march or so first week or or two at most in march we'll actually have the uh, snowpack temperature profile data being uh, shown in real time online and we're sampling every hour so um, roughly every hour uh, you'll see a new a new um, data set come in awesome that sounds good and we will link uh, all of those websites and everything down in the show notes yeah yeah and and once we get that page live it'll be linked on mountwashington.org under the snowpack sensing project page so you'll be able to find it there no problem excellent and uh, i i think with that it's probably time to move to everybody's favorite segment of the show fun paper friday yay Uh, so this week, our paper comes from listener Daryl again. Daryl has been sending us some fantastic suggestions. <laughs> uh, I love it because he th- makes this... our lives so easy, too. Thanks, Daryl. 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess you could say this dovetails easily into <laughs> to what we've been talking about. Uh, <laughs> uh, womp, womp, womp. <laughs> yeah, uh, I do what I can. So it's a... Ocean Sentinel albatrosses locate illegal vessels and provide the first estimate of the extent of non-declared fishing by Weimerskirch et al. I love this title because it sounds like there's these birds out there with like secret headpieces <laughs> spying on <laughs> spying on fishing vessels and like radioing it back like little spies. <laughs> That's pretty close. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I love it. <laughs> So we went from dinosaurs to birds to James Bond. <laughs> yeah. Um, explain to us, John, how these birds are performing. There's actually a movie. I'm sorry. This just hit me. My son's been driving me crazy because he wants to go see this movie where this pigeon is a spy. So see? Look, it's all. <laughs> yeah. Just like that. Uh, so they, they made some little sensors and put on these birds, which these are large birds the sensor size and mass seem large to me and then they pointed out that it's under a percent of the total flight weight of the bird Mm -hmm. Uh, but we're what we're looking at uh, a gps location of the bird birds are gonna go around fishing vessels looking for some some free food and they'll they'll hang around those longer than other vessels you know they fly over an oil tanker and they're not that excited Uh, but all of these ships have beacons on them that are saying, you know, I am this ship and here's my location. It's a safety thing, but they can be turned off. And if you're doing something like undeclared fishing or illegal fishing, you're probably not going to have that turned on. So these little sensors on the birds actually detect the uh, radar signal that all these ships are sending out so that they don't crash into each other or other obstacles. And if they detect the radar signal from a, a marine radar, they send the location of the bird back and then you can track and say, okay, the bird hung out in this area for five hours and we were sensing radar. That's probably a fishing vessel, but there's no beacon from any registered fishing activity in that area. So this is an illegal vessel versus these other vessels that are doing the appropriate things. This is crazy. And so are they, do the, sensors get data i mean specific data about these potentially illegal fishing vessels uh, not really other than okay. position Just that time they're, they're and here. that there's a radar okay all right gotcha interesting and did this was this an outgrowth of something else that these birds were supposed to be sensing and they figured this out or was this the purpose this, from what I can tell, was the purpose, though it definitely feels like a one person's noise is another person's signal. It sure does. Yeah, that's what I was. Yeah, when I was, you know, glancing through this, that's what I thought, too. I felt like these birds were censored or, yeah, censored for something else. And then they're like, hey, what's this weird thing that we keep seeing? <laughs> um, yeah. And I love it that it's just this sort of birds hang around fishing vessels for a long time. So they're there for a long time and get pinged. Clearly somebody's doing something illegal. That seems like a very, um, like that might not hold up in court is my point. (laughs) Right. Uh, My bingo card didn't fill up very much on this paper, though, because the words machine learning were not mentioned, which (laughs) 
absolutely <laughs> floored me. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, this is so interesting. Was there an appendix here showing the actual sensors? Because I couldn't find it in the the paper. No, okay. from what I can tell, there's just a description. Though they did say they developed them with a commercial company, which I don't know if that means they paid a commercial company to develop these sensors for them or if there's some other commercial interest in airborne radar sensing attached to birds. Yeah, so, I mean, an albatross, right? These things are pretty big. I need to see a video of them being... <laughs> outfitted with these sensors i feel like this is really missing in here and was probably a, a traumatic experience for someone right <laughs> because like you said well, these and, are really big you, yeah they're, they're big and what amazed me and you know eric you were talking about solar panels i'm not sure how big your solar panels are but these had solar panels on them and kept them running for a year plus in some cases that just blew me away that's incredible. <laughs> These poor birds. Did, 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 <laughs> how, how big was the battery? I don't know. They don't specify in here. And I think the solar panel was really pretty small. But I guess if you're only pinging data, you know, when you happen to be in vicinity of a, of a radar signal, maybe it's not that often. Hmm. Uh, but no, this was... This was pretty crazy, and they had a, a nice little flow chart in here that showed, but yes. they were, this data was getting sent up to a satellite, going over to a server, they were pulling in uh, the the position data from some other service, and doing all of this, you know, if it's within five kilometers of a known position, we'll assign it to that position, and making these maps in, in pseudo real time. Uh, but they also have some, in figure three in here, uh, they must ping even if they don't see a radar somewhat frequently. Uh, but you can see all these flight tracks, and some of them are incredible. Yeah, these are super long. I mean, I know birds migrate a long distance, but to actually see the data from it are pretty, you know, that's a pretty unbelievable picture right here. And I looked up each Definitely. of these. I looked up each of these albatrosses. Some of them have like 8 to 10 foot wingspans. Yeah, how do you not have some serious that's what I mean. you know, like, lacerations after trying to install the sensor? Exactly. Like, when I said traumatic, I did not mean for that bird. <laughs> that's why I want to see this. Um, that's uh, Yeah, this is really interesting. But like, how? what's the outgrowth of this? Do you think the next thing is to fit the albatrosses with, you know, I don't know, heat-seeking missiles now or... <laughs> what's the next step <laughs> drones maybe I, well i'm wondering about uh you know like how uh, um uh, there's several satellite companies we've talked about them before like planet and others they're trying to image the whole globe every 24 hours mm -hmm. uh, with pretty good resolution you know i'm wondering because i've heard the applications of that data being used to trying to find and track vessels uh could you use this data to target because that's so many so many photos and so much data you're never going to be able to comb through it and find yeah. vessels but if you had these birds saying hey you should look here this might be interesting uh, can you look there on a satellite image and then deploy what i can only imagine are very limited resources to police fishing 
See, this is why we started this podcast, so we could hook up the satellite companies with the albatross companies and stop illegal <laughs> fishing. I love it. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, this is, very, uh, this is a very interesting use of technology. <laughs> Yeah, and so, uh, so Eric, I think you might have a, a potential eager grant funding opportunity here. Uh, yeah, with, with instrumenting you. some birds. <laughs> yeah, with it with an eight to ten foot wingspan, they might be able to handle some of the strong winds on Mount Washington. I like that's, it. That's that's yeah. what I was yeah. thinking, and they'll find any yeah. of those illegal bears out there. <laughs> <laughs> have them drop rocks on the bears if they get too close to the instrument. That's- that's right (laughs) exactly (laughs) shoe (laughs) i love it yes (laughs) this could be big rocks 10 foot wingspan it'll be fun (laughs) it's a it's a different uh different coupling of geology and atmospheric science that we normally talk about but i like it (laughs) we're expanding the horizons Yes. Oh. Uh, but, you know, I was a little disappointed in the fact that uh, I think this project needs to be run through the acronym generator. Oh. Uh, because the Ocean Sentinel program. Yeah. It, it's begging for a tortured acronym. Man, it sure is. <laughs> we'll have to uh, run that through and uh, release the results next time. Well, and actually, so Eric, you know, you said your snowpack sensor project, does that have any tortured acronym or <laughs> SP squared or something like that? Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm usually one to, to think up of acronyms for for things, but in this case, no, I have not come up with an acronym. It's It's always just been the snowpack sensing project, so... Have at it. If you come up with something good, maybe I'll uh, I'll take it or buy the rights off of you. <laughs> oh, all yeah. Right. So if if you have uh, ideas for that, you should definitely send them in to us, and we'll make sure to uh, to forward them to Eric. And you know, maybe yes. you could be the next person to name a snowpack sensing network or an albatross <laughs> or an albatross. I like it. Uh, well. Eric, thanks for taking the time to to come on the show and talk about your work with us and uh, hang around for Fun Paper Friday and talk about uh, Albatross as well. <laughs> yeah, it was a blast. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. It's It's been fun. Great. And so, Shannon, if folks do have their own uh, SWE observations that they would like to send in and share with us, tortured acronyms, or if they have developed their very own GPS radar tracking module and have affixed it to birds in their area, how can they send that data in? <laughs> Please send me pictures. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, hang out with us in the Slack chat room. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going with great interviews like this one. You can support us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.